Good morning, church. How we doing? Good, good. My name's Jason. I serve as one of the elders here and grateful to get to open up God's Word with you. Please meet me in Lamentations chapter 1. Lamentations chapter 1. You know, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then Lamentations. Don't be impressed. I just read the table in contents. Um, so Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, then Lamentations. If you get to Ezekiel, go back to the left. Lamentations chapter 1. As Chad mentioned, this is the Lenten season, a time for us uh, out of Ash Wednesday, which was just last Wednesday, to consider, to mourn, to lament even our mortality. Uh, as Genesis teaches us that we are from dust and to dust we shall return, and yet we sense this enduring faithfulness, this enduring affection and love of God through that. And so during this season, we'll be considering the book of Lamentations. And if you uh, are saying to yourself, this will be the first time I read Lamentations, well, this is the first time I'll be teaching through it, so we're in this together. Um, and I, I think it would be appropriate to begin with uh, some hip-hop uh, cultural history and understanding um, knowing that we're coming to Lamentations. Because for many of us, perhaps we think about a, a, a cultural art form or a musical art form of hip-hop as something that is not lamentable. But Lauren Hill would beg to differ. In her album, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, many suggest that that album in particular, Lauren Hill on her own begins to sort of rewrite a bit of what we expect from hip-hop music and from this particular album uh, specifically. See, what she began to do is not only introduce hip-hop in sort of a mainstream perspective where many believed or did not partake of that, that art form previously, she did this after her years with the Fugees, after a, a, an album where she speaks directly about God and her relationship with him. She speaks with this candidness and vulnerability about who she is. And on top of all of that, she is a woman stepping into a game, into a culture dominated by men. And so many credit the miseducation of Lauren Hill as going beyond what was expected from that cultural enterprise, from that artistic form. And as I re-listened to this album this week, first, it's awesome. It is so good. But the other thing that began to draw my attention was how much she solicits and employs this angst or lament throughout the entire album. It is an album of lament. When you listen to her words, she captures in a song a kind of angst which may not be expected or even believed to fit within the bars of a rap song. In her perhaps most famous song, Doo-Wop, parenthetically, that thing, right? She warns and even laments that men only want one thing. So she gives a heads up to everybody. In Forgive Them, Father, she raps, it took me a little while to discover wolves in sheep's coats who pretend to be lovers. In Everything is Everything, she begins, I wrote these words for everyone who struggles in their youth. And then she continues, sometimes it seems we'll touch that dream, but the things come slow and, or not at all, and the ones on top won't make it stop, so convinced that they might fall. Let's love ourselves and we can't fail to make a better situation. Tomorrow our seed will grow. All we need is dedication. Let me tell you that. Her work was lament. 
It was lament against broken relationships, the ills of her neighborhood, and the plight of her community. And it settled in the souls of a generation of hip-hop fans and made new fans out of those who perhaps hadn't listened to that kind of music ever. This less familiar, the less familiar we are with hip-hop music, perhaps the less we expect lament. The more we're familiar, the more we expect, and I believe that's the truth with the scriptures as well. The less familiar we are with the Bible, the more surprised we are by books like Lamentations. The more familiar we are with the scriptures, the more Lamentations becomes a poetic expression that speaks and communicates and even groans in a way that your soul couldn't find words on its own. There is something beautiful about lament in poetic form. It opens up and even creates spaces to cry out. But it's something, isn't it true, that Christians rarely embrace? So we almost never go to the book of Lamentations or Jeremiah or there's a set of the Psalms that we go quickly by. In fact, if we're honest, it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even seem necessary to us to lament. Soon after my sister-in-law passed in 2018, my wife and I went to a biblical counselor for support, for guidance, and she was a gift. And if I'm really honest with you, I, like a really good husband, was going to counseling for my wife, not for me. After all, this was Laura's sister. This was her sorrow. This was her grief. I was merely a husband. Well, in a very unexpected way, in our very first session, the counselor asked me a number of questions that made it very clear I had issues with power and issues with lament. See, to me, perhaps you can identify with this, grieving is inconvenient. Grief actually steals me away from purpose and from mission and of doing the work that I need to do. It, it takes me away. And I was like, yeah, that sounds really good. A month later, I hadn't read a page. Because I didn't want to read Lamentations. Because there was something, the title tells you, like if you start reading this, you're going to cry. And I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Grief is a distraction from the work that I need to do, right? I mean, sorrow, I thought, and in many respects still wrestle with, sorrow is a funeral service, not a season. It's a moment. It's a nice tucked-in moment that's scheduled for a few hours, maybe a week after grief has hit us, and then after that we move on because God is good and he empowers me and we can do this and it's all good and we grieve, but not like the world, we move on. What the Lord has graciously done with me, church, over even in the midst of my disobedience for that month is that he over and over and over again has been gracious to me if I have been willing to come to him with my grief. Through his word, he will be faithful. And see, what lamentations will do is invite us to look at our sin. And we'll want to look real quick, right, so that we get credit for the gaze, so we'll get credit for the, the, the momentary glance. We'll want to just scratch the surface and say, okay, we've considered our sin, but then we'll read more and, and be forced to look again at our sin. We'll, we'll be forced to ponder, to weep, to confess, and to be grieved. I know nobody wants that. In fact, we come to church for the opposite, don't we? Like, let, let's just be real from jump. We come to church so we can stop grieving, so we can be lifted and be encouraged and be sent to brunch with a smile. This is why we are here. We, we want to be lifted. We want to feel good. We want to be encouraged. And to be sure, the hope of the gospel is deeply encouraging. 
But unless we admit the sorrow of our sin, our encouragement will last six days and we'll need another fill-up next Sunday. The kind of encouragement that the gospel provides is an unflinching look at the brokenness of my heart and of yours and an answer to all that you find. Church, sisters and my brothers, the gospel is so much better than just giving you a seven-day lift. The good news of Jesus will change you on the spot. It will change us on the spot if we are willing to be exposed and to allow our deep need to be known. You see, we, when our need is fully exposed, we can be fully healed. When our need is fully exposed, we can be fully healed. And that's, that's how good our, our Lord is. That's how good our God is. No matter the anguish of our rap songs or hip-hop or poetry or any breakup ballad that we could possibly hear, he alone can sufficiently satisfy our soul. So let's go to him and to his word together. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, this is um, one of those moments where I am more aware of my need for you than at other times. To be sure, I'm always in need. We are always in need. And yet a book like this really exposes. And so I pray for your help. I pray for courage. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would make us incredibly sensitive people, aware of your presence, aware of your work and your word. And Father, I pray that, that would you graciously keep our attention for just as long as you desire on the things that you desire us to consider. Protect my heart from wanting to race too quickly to the hope so I don't have to look at the sin. Not because the hope's not good, Lord. It's because there's something that you want to teach us in sorrow, in anguish, in lament, in our brokenness. And so I pray for my sisters, I pray for my brothers, would you take hold of their full attention? That whatever posture we have come here with today, Father, would you put us on our knees that we might submit to you and your word. We'll worship you for it. As challenging, as difficult as it may be, as unfamiliar as it may be for many of us to step into this kind of biblical territory, we thank you that you are even with us to the valley of the shadow of death and we have to fear no evil because you're with us. And so we thank you that you are Emmanuel, God with us, that you are present, a very present help in time of trouble. And so I pray that you would help us as your word is proclaimed over us. Would you make us more the people, the church you're calling us to be? We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, the book of Lamentations is five chapters. Each chapter is a single poem. So Lamentations is a collection of five poems. Five poems that that are independent from one another and yet thematically connected. So there is a beginning and an end to each poem from chapter's beginning till chapter's end. End. However, the the structure and language of Lamentations suggests that there is a particular author that's contrary to some presumption. See, many think that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, but it's probably not best to make that definitive claim. It's spoken nowhere through the text, and really it seems best to suggest that we just don't know. We don't know who who wrote this. Specifically, there is a pattern in this book that probably teaches us of a different authorship than Jeremiah, and that specific pattern is through the Hebrew alphabet. 
Chapters 1 and 2 each have 22 verses. Scholar F.B. Huey explains, each verse is composed of three lines. The first word of each verse begins with a consecutive Hebrew letter. Chapter 3 has 66 verses of of one line each. The first three verses begin with the first letter of the alphabet. The next three verses begin with the second letter, and so on. Chapter 4 has 22 verses of two lines each. The first word of each verse begins with consecutive Hebrew letters. Chapter 5 contains 22 verses, but it is not an acrostic. Nor does it contain the kinam meter. Perhaps the breakdown in the pattern that characterizes here this, the previous chapters, was deliberate in order to suggest chaos and despair. So the, hear this. The intentionality, not just with the content of Lamentations, but the structure of Lamentations, is to leave you in chaos and despair. Welcome to church. I'm grateful that you are here today. We plan on leaving you in chaos and despair. So there's this artistry and this syncopation that has a particular purpose in it in this poem, and it gives way to this sorrow and disorder. At first, that may be odd to us, but isn't that really honest? Isn't that really true of our experience with grief and lament? See, what this poem will do is tell the truth about who we are, not just with its content, but also in its form. The lament from chapters 1 through 5 move back and forth from individual to, comp, to, to communal language where the speaker or the poet will often speak with uh, their own voice but then give voice to the city. Yet unlike Jeremiah or the Psalms, God is only addressed in a handful of passages and then entirely in chapter 5. And in many cases, this lament is simply the immediate and obvious need or pain or fear of the circumstances of the speaker What this teaches us and what we learn from experience is that pain is myopic. This kind of suffering teaches us to look at what is only right in front of us. In particular, therefore, the circumstances that this poetry will be addressing is the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. This places the writing of Lamentations and the events described in them at the very beginning of the 6th century B.C., about 587 B.C. We should remember that then at the city of Jerusalem was not just a city in a particular uh, country and place, but the temple specifically was a holy and sacred place for God's people. It not only represented their ethnic identity, but also their, their spiritual connection and power and the very presence of God. And therefore, the fall of the city and the temple would have been deeply grievous, would have been an identity crisis for God's people. It would have been spiritually devastating for those who had learned to worship and identify and be part of God's people in that context. The first poem begins with deeply metaphorical language. Look at it with me, communicating the anguish of the grief that we will be walking through. Look at it, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with her tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. We're given a picture of a city once filled with people and now lonely. Once a married woman and now a widow. Once a great 
nation among nations, now not any longer, a princess who now has become a slave. Each image begins to participate together, giving us a devastating metaphor or personification of Jerusalem as this woman or this widow. Poetically, this personification creates like deep cultural dissonance for us because in this particular context, a woman who was widowed would have been in incredible isolation, would have been vulnerable culturally and certainly financially. In this particular context, though, it's not just about what would have happened in the ancient Near East at the beginning of the 6th century, but it's, it's employing biblical language. See, God had always spoken about his people and the covenant he had with his people and this marital language that he had with them. And so the marital language is not just circumstantial, but it's deeply biblical and spiritual. And so when we apply this metaphor to the whole city, this idea being communicated from the outset of Lamentations is that Jerusalem is like a mourning widow who has spiritually rejected the covenant and is left economically impoverished, struggling to survive. Though everyone experience, everyone's experience is different, one of the common initial uh, impacts of grief is that it causes you to recall, to remember, to bring to mind, to look at pictures, to consider what's been lost. This is deeply human. As Leslie Allen writes about in her commentary on Lamentations, in the first section of the poem, the grieving community listens as one of their number, so one from them, articulates their grief as he defines their human losses. And so we're given this heart level, in other words, like, here's how this feels in verses 1 and 2. We should be very careful to say how exactly are all of these different pictures at play. It really is to communicate an emotion or a heart-level picture of what the poet and his people are going through. And then in verses 3 through 11, the poet begins to detail all of the relationships, all of the brokenness, all of the things that have been lost. Notice those who celebrated are gone in verse 4. Their their children are gone in verse 5. The majesty and glory of the city are gone in verse 6. Her princes have become weak and are gone in verse 6. Generally precious things are gone in verse 7. There's no one to bring comfort, verse 9. This is a great loss. For whatever the cause, this amount of lost relationships and, uh, relationship and distance from previously what was a normal life is devastating. In the face of his own great loss, writer C.S. Lewis wrote in a great, or a grief observed, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. See, what begins to happen in grief is that you start to ask yourself the question, can what was lost ever be restored? We fear whether or not the beauty of before can ever be recaptured. Notice, though, no one has died. But death's presence is unmistakable in the first stanza. Grief and fear always feel like death. Something has died. The Hebrew language, in fact, employs the power of death, weaving shadows within the syntax of the first poem. The English word how, the very first word there, look at it in verse 1. How is actually probably not the best translation of that word. It's, It's much more emphatic. It's much more pronounced. It should be, alas, the city sits alone. The word is eka, and actually it was the the original title of this collection of poems. 
The word is borrowed, though, from a funeral dirge. And as scholars Kathleen O'Connor and Naomi Sidman help us understand, here's what they say. The how is a bitter declaration that death has occurred. But it also implies interrogation. How could this happen to beloved Zion, beloved Jerusalem? How is it possible to even to speak of this destruction? There's much in a single word that reveals the emotion of the Lamentations poet. And we'll come to realize that ultimately why he senses death is because biblically, spiritually, separation is death. Separation from God is death. Their grief is like isolation. It's like fear. It's like death. So with all of this in mind, we should be unsurprised to read that the city can't sleep. Instead of rest, all she has is tears. How real is that? Isn't it true that when we're in the middle of grief or sorrow, that when we finally get done with the hustle, we finally get a moment to think and to collect our thoughts, we're probably laying in bed trying to sleep and all we have is tears. This is when grief is perhaps most severe and most tormenting. And in particular, the bed is really formative in this poem, not just where lament takes place, but remember the personification of Jerusalem is a grieving widow. When is it most palpable that your spouse is no longer with you, but when you climb into bed alone? After all of this, God's city Verse 2 said that they had taken other lovers, lovers with whom she thought she would find pleasure and rest and peace, but their comfort was only momentary. And now we see her grief as a result of sin. And so in agony, she weeps bitterly. And the question that is begged from the text is who will comfort her now? Who will comfort her now? The poem's metaphorical language shifts shifts a bit in verse 3, becoming much more concrete, so less ethereal, much more clear and concrete. The observer begins to detail the city's understanding of their iniquity and becomes more specific about the agony. In other words, we'll know why the city is weeping the way that she is. Look at verse 3. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Things begin to come into focus. The grief that we're reading about that that is so emotive in this first poem is not merely the loss of past glory and goodness, 
but grieving the betrayal of her Lord. Jerusalem is wrestling with the reality that at midnight, this midnight weeping and isolation and fear and death, all the agony of the present are righteous consequences from God. Notice in verse verse 5, the poet explains, look, look at it again, the Lord has afflicted her from the, for the multitude of her sins. This is not a grief of circumstance. This is a lament of sin. Pausing briefly from the immediate context, we have to ask ourselves the question, when were we grieved like this over our sin? When was the last time I couldn't sleep but only have tears because of the brokenness and sinfulness in my heart? My brothers and sisters, when was the last time you were in anguish over your spiritual infidelity? When was the last time we actually felt the weight of comfort's absence because we knew the folly and ruin of our sinfulness? Jerusalem has betrayed God. They've sinned. They've broken the covenant. This is why marital language is employed over and over again from the very beginning of the initial lament. Lovers, in verse 2, is metaphorical, just like the rest of the language. Jerusalem's sin may, may have included sexual promiscuity, but generally speaking, the lovers which can no longer bring comfort to the city are false gods, idols in whom the people had trusted. See, this type of explanation of Israel and Judah's sin is consistent in other books of the Bible like Hosea and Jeremiah. God's family has been broken by sin. God's family is always broken by sin. Children even scatter in verse 5. But the focus of lamentation, though, is not on the infidelity per se, but rather the agony that envelops God's people when sin persists and the family is broken. In other words, it's a set of poems about coming to grips with consequence. Lamentations is a set of poems about what it's like to come to grips with the righteous response of God's anger toward sin. Verse 3 tells us God's people have gone into exile and servitude. You see, the people of God were meant to gather in this city rejoicing, celebrating. We have to understand the stark contrast between lamentations and what God intended for his city and for the temple. Hear this in Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make joyful noise to the, the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. That's what they're supposed to be singing. That's the celebration of that space. This is how we're called to worship. But instead of celebration and shouts, of worship affirming the lordship and unique kingship of of God leading into the gathering. There's mourning, there's desolation, there's isolation. In addition, previously we've seen all the people that have left the city, but now, now go back through and see all of the people who are now here. Pursuers have overtaken the city. Foes have come and taken the head. Enemies prosper. Her foes gloated over her and mocked her downfall. See, the consequence is not just emotional. Let's, let's make this really clear. It's not just that they are grieved internally. They're watching their context change. They're now led by their enemies. And their priests are groaning, not knowing what to do. As a result, they are suffering. As French theologian John Calvin says, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. 
That's what's happening in Lamentations. This is certainly true here. The glory they once enjoyed as a people has vanished because their sin was so persistent. My brothers and sisters, sin destroys worship. Sin destroys worship. And it's often right here that we have to be so careful with what I'll just try to lovingly describe as this over-caffeinated Western American gospel that says, okay, that's enough. Have you read the New Testament preacher? Let's get to the hope. We know that's true, but God is, like, this is where we want to erase the pain and move quickly. But let's just take our time. Let's not move too quickly. This is the reality. You cannot fully worship God and hold on to your sin at the same time. Put another way, you can't ignore sin and give your attention to God. It's impossible because he is not ignoring your sin. Our worship is necessarily disabled by our sinfulness because it's the opposite of worship. But we tend, I think, to skip steps because we think it's not spiritually efficient as if our spiritual formation was ever meant to be efficient we're so consumed with efficiency that we're even like trying to make spiritual formation boil down into three steps in a poem, right? Well, this is the kind of poetry that the scriptures read, or write, rather. So as sorrow pours out from the poet, we're going to be tempted to just want to talk about grace, get to forgiveness. And of course, this is a good impulse. But notice it's not what's on God's mind right here. Sometimes we don't allow the weight of a passage like this to shape us, which led me to wonder this week how often do I call upon the grace of God just so I can get out of consequence? How often do I go to him and ask for forgiveness because I know the cost around the corner and I just want to avoid that? It's not because I'm broken. It's not because I even agree with him. I'm kind of like, oh, that's a judgment call whether or not that was sinful, but I'll confess it just so you don't get me, right? We have this sort of like game that we play. We are more motivated to avoid discomfort than we are about glorifying the God of the Bible. We're unmoved by his righteousness and kindness. And so our repentance is often merely the avoidance of consequence. I think this is why we're rarely grieved by sin. We just think about avoiding the discomfort. You see, you'll notice in Lamentations, this is, this is frightening. God doesn't speak the entire book. One time he is quoted by the, by the poet about something that he said previously in Lamentations 5.57. Other than that, he's silent. God is silent. May I suggest to you, this is part of sin's devastating consequence, that God is silent. It's unsettling, but it's real. How often in our grief are we just begging that God would say something? How often in consequence of sin, perhaps not even admitting that we are sinful, saying, I just can't hear God's voice right now. I don't feel like I'm close to him. I feel like there's separation. I feel like there's distance. I feel like there's silence. Say, but my friends, how can you hear the voice of God when we have spent so much time taking in the sounds of our lovers, of our idols? How can we hear the voice of God when we won't stop speaking to false gods and looking to them for counsel and wisdom? See, we must not move too quickly because two themes will continue in verse 8. Sinful grief and the overshadowing or overtaking of our enemies. Look at verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. 
All who honored her despised her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirt. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. Oh, Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations into her sanctuary. There are those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. The, the consequence that they are experiencing is not just circumstantial. This, this is why we must fully ponder and lament our sin. Notice the language in four stanzas. She becomes or became filthy. She is called despised. She's naked. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. In other words, it's elemental to who she is. She is despised. Sin begins to change not just what's around the city, but it changes the city itself. The composition and character of Jerusalem is changing. She is seen through a lens of her sin, not through the lens of her God. The people of God are meant to be known just as that, as God's people. We are meant to see ourselves and to be seen by others through the righteousness of God himself. But in sin and guilt and shame, these things become the primary ways in which the people are known. In many ways, we become our sin. Sin doesn't just destroy worship, but we become our sin. This is why we don't just read in the Bible that the things that we do are dead, but we, we read that we ourselves are dead. Paul writes this to the Ephesian church. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." We are dead in our sin. We, we are children of, laugh, of, of wrath. A theologian, Louis Burkhoff, uh, in his systematic theology, gives us, a, I think, a really helpful understanding of sin. It's the study known as hamartiology, taken from the Greek word that means to miss the mark, and the word to study or, or word, logos. Burkhoff explains six different points. So I, I think a lot of times we, we think about sin, and it's just like, it's bad stuff. Don't do bad stuff. I think the study of sin helps us to see the sophistication of it, the complexity of it, and therefore helps us to appropriately mourn and grieve and understand the poetry of Lamentations a little bit better. The first thing that Burkhoff says is that sin is a specific kind of evil. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Burkhoff says sin is not a a calamity that has come upon man unawares, poisoned his life and ruined his happiness, but an evil, an evil course rather, which man has deliberately chosen to follow and which carries untold misery with it. So sin is a specific kind of evil. Sin has an absolute character as well. So sin is a specific kind of evil and sin has an absolute character. In other words, there is no neutral ground with sin. It is utterly in contrast to the goodness and grace of God and his design. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Burkhoff says a moral being 
that is good does not become evil by simply diminishing his goodness, a good word for our time, but only by a radical qualitative change by turning to sin. Thirdly, sin always has relationship to God and his will. Sin always has relationship to God and his will. Romans 1.3, though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Sin is not a list of bad things and that if you, you do those bad things, you have sinned and, and broken. It, it's so much more than that. It's a failure to celebrate and live in response to who God is. It's so much more holistic. It's in a response to a relationship with him. Fourthly, sin includes both guilt and pollution. See, our iniquities are around us and they are inside of us. In other words, these are things that we do volitionally, but it's also things that we do at the level of our heart. Romans 7 But I see my members, Paul says, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Fifth, Burkhoff says sin has its set in in the heart, somewhat connected to the previous one about guilt and pollution. Burkhoff says sin does not reside in any one faculty of the soul, but in the heart which is scriptural psychology, is the central organ of the soul out of which are the issues of life. And from this center, it influences and operations spread to the intellect, the will, the affections, in short, the entire man, including his body. Sin begins in the heart, but like a fire, James describes, it it takes hold of everything. This is why Jeremiah will say that the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Lastly, 6, Burkhoff says, sin does not consist exclusively in overt acts. Sin is subtle, and it accounts for both sins of commission, of doing evil things, and of inaction or omission, of failing to do the good. Galatians 5, 17 teaches us this, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if, I, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. There is desire, subtlety within us, not just actions outside of us, which, which I think leads me to an important, what I would like to suggest is a relevant tangent. This is precisely this idea that sin does not consist exclusively in our overt acts. This is why we must be so careful not to believe we are absolved from consequence when we claim that our intentions were pure. When we speak about, that's not what I meant to do, that's not what I was trying to communicate, that's not what I was trying to say. See, what we intend in an action or a word is only part of the story of our sin. If I say something that is racist but didn't mean to be racist, I'm still guilty. I am guilty of not seeing my brother and sister as fully and completely as I could and of considering their own needs above my own. I'm guilty of not seeing them rightly. I'm guilty of not caring for them as best I could. I'm guilty of a lack of self-control. If, if some of my words hurt my wife or my inaction hurts my wife, I can't say, I didn't mean to hurt you. I am guilty because I'm supposed to care for her well and beyond just not doing anything bad to her. I may have sinned because I, 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 did, I lack self-control or I lack presence or patience or peaceableness with her or, or saw her needs above my needs. 
See, what we intend and do is not merely sinful, but often the righteousness that we fail to live out and fail to execute is actually deeply sinful. Our intentions only tell part of the story. Christians are not those who hide behind them. Relevant tangent complete. Back to our sin. See, sin has become so much a part of us, I think is what Burkhoff is ultimately getting at. It's become who we are outside of Christ. It's become the lens through which people see us. That, that, that means that we're guilty. It also becomes the lens through which we see ourselves. This is why we experience shame. Let's consider that again. When we see ourselves through our sin, that's shame. When other people see us through our sin, that, that's guilt. And out, outside of Christ, those are accurate views. Accurate views. See, in many ways, we become sin. Jerusalem is facing this reality in response to all of this. Now Jerusalem begins to speak. In other words, the poet gives voice to the city in verse 9 and 11. The voice changes. And many of our translations begin to employ these quotation marks. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. It is a heartfelt and grieved request for the attention of the Most High God. And the question we must be asking is, will he hear them? Who will comfort us now? The poet is not explicitly taught on something, but it's sort of been the ground, the soil, the foundation of the poem thus far. And now uh, Jerusalem, who's given this voice, is now going to be very precise about uh, the anger of God. It's kind of been the, the thing underneath all of these words. Look at verse 12. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which is brought upon me, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men. In my midst, he summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. One of the many things that happens when we move too quickly out of grief or at least try to and to get back to happy thoughts and good feeling thoughts is that we avoid answering really challenging questions like who is God? Like where is God? Who is God in my grief? Who is God when I need comfort? Will he bring me comfort? You see, we can easily dismiss the anguish of Jerusalem as just a product of their circumstance, as a, as a natural result of their foolishness or an impact of their environment. But the city starts talking directly to God here, or at least about God. And one of the discoveries we make as we listen in on their lament is that Jerusalem is actually really familiar with the anger of God. It's something they easily speak about and easily credit for what they have gone through. Why? Because they've got history with God's anger. However, most of us grew up in probably one of two different contexts as it relates to the anger of God. So we have to be careful as we move forward in such a consideration. I want to be careful. I want to be mindful of that. See, when it comes to the anger of God, some of us grew up in a, in a spiritual context where the anger of God was constantly used as a manipulative tool to get you to obey. It was a fearful tool 
God is going to get you. He is watching you. He is after you. He will smite you. He will hurt you. Therefore, fall in line. And, and, in, many, and in many ways, as, as I've sit, sat with many of you and talked through this, that gets exemplified in, in parenting in that kind of a context. Because if God is angry, so am I. Because I'm supposed to teach you about God, so there's my excuse for why I can be so frustrated with you when you don't fall in line. In, in other settings, though, though, some of us, many of us are still working through what that means about the anger of God. In other contexts, it's almost a reaction to that. We don't talk about the anger of God at all. We only speak about him as a God of love. And any passage where it looks like God has a, kind of a crazy temper, we just go, ah, get to Jesus. Jesus was really upset all the time too. Ah, take those out. Like get to, I don't know, just he's happy, okay? And, and therefore we have this expectation of God is that he's never gonna be upset. He's always gonna be happy. He's always gonna, because he's a God of love. And then when his anger shows up, we don't know what to do. And in fact, we're low-key embarrassed of God when he shows up that way. In some of our churches, God's anger is used in manipulation. In others of our churches and experiences, God's anger is just embarrassing. And so there's a reason why we don't know what to do when we're faced with the anger of God in the scriptures. There's a reason that I often don't know what to do. But that's exactly what happened. Now, why could God be so angry at Jerusalem? Well, Deuteronomy 28 makes it pretty clear that, that God told his people what was going to happen. And the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among the nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. In other words, God said, this is going to happen. If you persist in sin, this kind of anguish, this kind of lament, this kind of grief is going to happen. Therefore, the anger of God is the righteous execution of his word. It's him doing exact, exactly what he promised because his clear expectations were disregarded and unmet. Notice in verse 12, the sorrow is understood as directly coming from God on the day of his fierce anger. And then in verse 13, he sent fire, he spread a net, he turned me back, he has left me stunned. These are not merely natural consequences of, consequences of living foolishly. These are manifestations of God's direct and willful judgment of his people. Scholar Hetty Laleman in her commentary on Lamentations says, God will not save them from the net. God has, as it were, become Jerusalem's enemy and used the Babylonians to kindle a fire, literally, to burn down the temple and city. We become our sin. These two voices never actually speak to one another. The poet speaks about the city, and then the city never quite responds and speaks with a different kind of voice. But ultimately, what begins to take place, and what we see as the city speaks more and more, is that the city can't find comfort. So in sin, there is no comfort. This is the point of the chapter. Comfort has been the, the stumping refrain throughout the first poem Kathleen O'Connor suggests in her book, Lamentations and the Tears of the World, that both speakers recognize Jerusalem's isolation as a factor in her suffering. She has no one to comfort her. This idea is communicated six times in these 22 verses. Who will bring comfort? The city keeps speaking. Look at verse 16. For these things I weep. 
My eyes flow with tears for a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate for the, from the, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out to her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Verse 20, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now, let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions from my groanings are many and my heart is faint. God doesn't respond. And notice in agony, the voice of Jerusalem dwindles down to one of vengeance. Do to them what you did to me. Do to those bad people what you've done to me. See, we are not grieved with our sin, church, because we are not impressed with God. And when we are neither grieved by sin nor impressed with God, we're offended by his anger if it's directed towards us, or we're embarrassed by his anger if it's directed towards others. See, what happens is that our morality, our judgment becomes supreme and not the Lord's. Here's the devastating effect. When we don't submit to the impressiveness of God and lament our sin, it always turns into this vengeful, poetic dissonance and frustration and pain. This is what the city is wrapped up in. Her sin has become her shackles. What we realize, though, look at verse 18. Is there something through that that the city recognizes that the Lord is not making a mistake? That's fascinating. Look at verse 18. The Lord is in the right. Or a better translation, the Lord is righteous. So in the midst of his anger, what is becoming clearest to Jerusalem is not the injustice of God, but the righteousness of God. See, theologically, this is where God's anger lives, within his holiness, within his righteousness. See, we cannot have a righteous God who is not righteously indignant when his righteousness is betrayed. Now, let's just be real. You see, we are shocked by his anger still. It's so uncomfortable. We think his temper is awkward, exaggerated, embarrassing. But if God's anger is a manifestation of his righteousness, then what we really have an issue with is his righteousness, not his anger. Let's stop acting like we, I've just been so much more self-controlled than God. No, we are way less righteous than he is. That's why we don't understand his anger. This is what's underneath this. 
See, when we see his righteousness, when we get a picture for that, that his will and his way leads to flourishing, we will not only understand his anger better, but we will be grateful that even his anger directed towards us would lead to lament and to grief because by his grace, we pray that we would repent. See, even his anger becomes a safeguard for us. But in our sin, we really like to wiggle out. We're real wiggly, like my children that won't sit still. My heart, your heart, all of us, we're like, you really talking about this? Are you talking about this? What exactly? Not quite sure. Therefore, I don't have to repent. So one of the things that we come up with in our wiggliness, if I can say that, our spiritually, spiritual wiggliness, we've come up with ideas like, well, God hates the sin, but not the sinner. And so then in our confession, we're like, God, I know you hate what I did, but I know you weren't angry at me, you were angry at it. Here's scholar D.A. Carson respond to such an idea. The cliche, God hates the sin but loves the sinner, is false on the face of it and should be abandoned. Fourteen times in 50 different psalms, in the first 50 psalms, rather, alone, we are told that God hates the sinner. His wrath is on the liar and so forth. In the Bible, the wrath of God rests both on the sin, Romans 1.18, and the sinner, John 3.36. Throughout this poem, Jerusalem doesn't feel like God is angry at some inanimate thing that they've done. Their feeling of God's anger is that it's upon them. And when we too quickly move out of comfort, we miss that. We don't want to hear that. And if we miss that, then we will not understand why it was so important that Jesus came to become our wrath bearer. He came to bear the wrath, Romans teaches us. And as the wrath bearer, what begins to take place? See, sin destroys our worship. We have become sin, and in our sin, we cannot find comfort. But the gospel hope for us is that sin destroyed worship, but Jesus destroys sin, Colossians chapter 2. We become our sin, but Jesus became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In sin, there is no comfort, but the God of the universe is known as the God of all comfort, and he dwells in us, and he's called our helper, our comforter, our advocate, John 14. See, when we have a right view of our sin, we get an accurate view of God, and we get an accurate view of God, we get an accurate view of our sin. We must behold what Jesus has done, that we must understand what we have been culpable in. When we get a right vision of the cross, a right vision of Christ, all of a sudden we will find ourselves weeping and wailing and crying and lamenting over the tragedy of our sin. Not saying his anger is awkward, but his anger is just. Forgive us, Father. We know not what we do. See, when we lament rightly, we find true and lasting comfort. The reason we have such feeble comfort is because we have such feeble confession. But when we get a right view of God, when we find God in our grief, because in Christ, God has met us in our grief, because paradoxically, the God who is angry is also the God who brings comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercy, and of God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is a generative kind of comfort. In other words, when we are comforted rightly by God, we begin to comfort others. It leads to the miseducation of Lauren Hill. As she has walked through grief and suffering and pain, she begins to put through poetry and hip-hop and rap music something that speaks the truth. See, one of the reasons we have such a hard time with some of the ills of our culture is because we're not 
honest about the ills of our hearts. Lamentable in our rebellion and what we have done. And that, but this is the brilliance, really, of lament. Lament is a rebellion against apathy. It's a rebellion against meaningless and an entitlement because lament actually always assumes that someone is listening. Lament always assumes that someone is listening. You see, the point of this chapter is that to cry, we need to cry out to God in our distress even if he is the one who is causing our distress because of our sin. Because this is what we do. This is what lament is all about. When we cry out to God, we look to God, we call to God, we ask for God. And so Paul writes, we treat we are treated as imposters and yet we are true, as unknown and yet known, as dying and yet behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. See, lament is the way we Christians walk the line of sorrow and hope every day. We acknowledge the brokenness of our heart, we acknowledge the brokenness of this world, and yet we cry out to God in the middle of all of it. I cannot be more serious about this. Even in something like the coronavirus, something that for some of, some of us, it's just like, oh, this isn't a big deal, everybody calm down. Even still, our hope is not that a virus dies out. Our hope is that the God of the Bible rules and reigns. Our hope is that the God of the Bible hears our cry for our brothers and sisters in different countries. Our, our hope is that God has actually already done something, that though we may have sorrow for the night, joy will come in the morning. That whether you're walking through tragedy right now, it's not to act like that tragedy is not real. It's to act and know that that tragedy is not going to have the last word. It's to know that even in my grief, even in my sin, even when I ask the question, who will comfort me in all of this? The answer is the almighty God of the Bible. He will bring comfort. He will bring peace. And I wonder one day, won't it be so glorious when that city fills up again? A new city filled with life, filled with hope. No more crying, no more tears, no more death. Only life in Jesus Christ who will wipe away every tear. Would you bow your head and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we lament over our sin, over our disbelief, over our lack of trust. We lament over sins of commission, sins of omission. We lament over the ways that we have been embarrassed by your character. We lament and beseech your forgiveness for the ways that we have not been impressed with you because you are truly impressive. You are glorious. You are beautiful. You are wonderful. You are our comfort, a very present help in time of trouble. Would you teach us to cry out? Would you teach us to grieve? Would you teach us to lament? And would you teach us to hope in the midst of all of this, because we trust that in Christ, one day, all shall be well. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?